This is the EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics that you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. Before we dive in, registration is now open for both the EM Cases course, June 24th, with Himmel, Bosman, Sial, Kovacs, Benno, Klayman, just to name a few, and the second annual podcast camp, the only two-day hands-on course dedicated to medical podcast production. Check podcastcamp.org for details. Both have limited tickets, so please act fast. And the quiz vault has been delayed a bit because of some back-end cleaning up we've had to do. But it should be up and running on the EM Cases website by the end of March. All right, on to EM Quick Hits. First on this month's EM Quick Hits is Natalie May, pediatric EM doc from the UK working down under, St. Emlyn's podcaster on recognition of Kawasaki disease. One of the residents asks you for some help in the pediatric ED with a three-year-old boy. The boy's been complaining of a sore throat for the last week. And he and his dad have already seen their community doctor twice. First, really early in the illness, when he was prescribed amoxicillin. And then about five days later, when the amoxicillin had made no difference, when he was prescribed erythromycin. He's been having fevers in that last week too. But because things aren't any better, they've decided to come to the ED. There's no history of vomiting or diarrhoea. No chorizal symptoms. He's passing urine and he's being given regular antipyretics at appropriate doses. His vital signs are temperature of 38.6 Celsius or 101.5 Fahrenheit, a heart rate of 140, capillary refill less than two seconds, respiratory rate 29, and SATs of 100% on room air. The resident tells you that he's had a bit of a red throat, but no pus. The chest is clear, the abdomen's soft, and she thinks the ears are okay, but she'd quite like you to have a second look if you don't mind. When you go to see the child, the first thing you notice is that he's not like the other three-year-olds in the emergency department where everything is bright and exciting. He's lying really quietly on his bed in the cubicle, looking up at you with sad red eyes. And something about that clicks. So you ask his father whether there's been a rash. Yes, actually, he says. His nappy rash has been a lot worse in the last week, but we thought that was just the antibiotics. Kawasaki disease, or mucocutaneous lymph node syndrome, is diagnosed clinically using the following diagnostic criteria. Fever for more than five days, plus four of extremity changes, and that's usually desquamation of the hands and feet following a period of swelling. Polymorphous exanthem, so a rash anywhere. Bilateral non-superative conjunctivitis, that means red eyes both sides, but no exudate. Changes to the lips or oral cavity, or cervical lymphadenopathy. The exact underlying etiology is unclear, but generally it's believed to be an autoimmune vasculitis, possibly triggered by infection in those with genetic predisposition. Kawasaki disease is predominantly seen in Japanese children, followed by other ethnic groups with lowest incidence among Caucasians. But it's seen throughout the world in children of all ethnicities, and making this diagnosis is important because of cardiac complications. Around 4-5% to of children with Kawasaki disease may develop coronary artery aneurysms, And those patients are at risk of associated stenosis or obstruction of that affected artery and subsequent myocardial infarction and potentially death. Kawasaki disease is a favourite of exam question writers, but it's actually quite difficult to diagnose in the ED, or at least at the first clinical presentation. 
There's increasing recognition that children often present early in the course of disease before all those features are present, and some will never meet those five diagnostic criteria, so-called incomplete cases, which make up between 15 and 30%. Some will develop cardiac abnormalities before they become complete cases, and some evidence suggests that later diagnosis is associated with higher risk of aneurysm formation. Younger patients, particularly those under six months, are at increased risk of delayed diagnosis. There's considerable clinical crossover with scarlet fever, a disease caused by exotoxins released by infection with strep pyogenes, which presents with a sore throat, strawberry tongue, and later peeling extremities. But crucially, those patients usually improve with treatment with penicillin. So if you see that returning pediatric patient with a diagnosis of strep throat, ongoing fever, and no improvement with antibiotics, there should be a lot of red flags flying in your mind. So what do we do with a child who we think might have Kawasaki disease? Well, thinking of this diagnosis is a really important first step. Unlike other vasculitic disorders, there's a lack of evidence for the benefit of steroid therapy. The mainstay of treatment is with intravenous immunoglobulin, which was demonstrated in a multi-centre randomised controlled trial to significantly reduce the rate of coronary aneurysm formation compared with aspirin alone. Aspirin is often used in combination with IVIG, but the evidence for it is pretty weak, which is at least in part because it's hard to do big trials around rare outcomes of rare diseases. Coronary artery aneurysm formation is usually assessed by echocardiogram, with patients frequently treated preemptively. So if the story is good, a referral to your inpatient paediatric or paediatric cardiology team is a key step. Remember also that these patients may present with associated dehydration or circulatory compromise, and that those with established coronary artery aneurysms may present with arrhythmia or even myocardial infarction, and they may not yet have had their diagnosis of Kawasaki disease. Arrhythmia and dehydration are treated like any other child, but the associated myocardial infarction is trickier and very specialised, so resuscitate and liaise early with your local paediatric cardiology service. So what do we do in summary? Well, we should know the diagnostic criteria and ask ourselves, could this be Kawasaki disease? And we should consider Kawasaki disease particularly in children re-presenting with fever, or with fever for more than five days. And my practice is to specifically document the diagnostic criteria and their presence or absence, especially if I'm discharging those patients. Resuscitate is needed, treating dehydration and arrhythmias and involving pediatric cardiology specialists. All right. So the most important and challenging aspect of Kawasaki for the ED doc is recognition. So put Kawasaki on your differential for any child with a fever for more than a couple of days, and especially any kid with fever and rash. For me, the feature that jumps out the most is the beefy red lips. Sometimes just one look at the kid with a fever who has beefy red lips and asking the parents if the lips look different to them, that's what clues me into the diagnosis. The desquamation of the hands and the feet are often late features, so they're often missing when you see them in the ED. And another clue is sterile pyuria. Lots of white cells with zero bacteria is not uncommonly seen in Kawasaki disease. Don't forget that there's also incomplete Kawasaki as well, as Natalie mentioned. So you don't have to wait for five days of fever to make the diagnosis. And you don't need all four typical features to trigger getting some blood work or consulting your pediatric colleagues for consideration of IVIG and ASA and searching for coronary aneurysms with an echo. Next up is my buddy, Justin Morgenstern, who's going to dig into the evidence on whether or not we should withhold suturing dog bites or not. A six-year-old boy was playing a little too rough with a family dog. 
As a result, he has four small lacerations on his cheek that line up really well with Fido's front teeth. Although Dad seems to find the whole situation somewhat humorous, Mum is, understandably, a little bit anxious. Is this going to scar? Is he going to be permanently disfigured? Where's the plastic surgeon? There is a lot of dogma in the management of dog bites. People love talking about antibiotics, but I thought I would tackle the other big issue. Should we suture dog bites closed? I was taught not to. Something about trapping the bacteria in the wound and increasing the chance of infection. Although we never seem to be worried about the extra bacteria exposure that would come from leaving the wound open. Now, let's bring some evidence to our practice, which is relatively easy because there are only two RCTs. The first is by Mameris in the Archives of Emergency Medicine back in 1988, which coincidentally was when I was six years old. This study looked at 169 lacerations in 96 patients, all caused by dog bites. The wounds were soaked in chlorhexidine, but irrigation was sort of pathetic, only 50 mils on average. They didn't use antibiotics in any of these patients, and they randomized them to either be sutured or not. And the results? No difference. Infection occurred in 7.6% of the sutured group and 7.8% of the group that was left open. Cosmetic outcomes weren't different either, although the scar was one millimeter narrower in the sutured group. The other RCT is by Pachos in Injury 2014. This study had 168 dog bites, and again, they were randomized to sutures or nothing. The only exclusions were immunosuppression and complex wounds, so almost everybody's screen was actually enrolled. And once again, there was no statistical difference between the groups. Infection occurred in 9.7% of the sutured group and 6.9% of the not sutured group. This time, there was a difference in cosmesis. Blinded surgeons looking at the wound four weeks later rated the sutured laceration as being better using a validated score. So that's it. That's all of our evidence. So what do we do with that? Now, obviously, the evidence isn't perfect. The trials are small. The Pasho study might have been underpowered to find a small difference between the groups. Perhaps the number one takeaway is that if you're looking for a research project, this is a great option. Dog bites are common, and so this study should be pretty easy, and we clearly need one large, high-quality study. However, for now, I think the evidence suggests that we should routinely suture dog bites closed after excellent local care, including extensive irrigation. Personally, I would also consider suturing patients with immunosuppression, but only after discussing the risks with them and involving them in that discussion. But as always, you should take this evidence, now that you know it, and apply your own clinical judgment, as well as involving your patients in the decision-making process, because that is what evidence-based medicine is all about. Oh, and if you were wondering, I don't treat with antibiotics either, but that's a whole different topic. So for the run-of-the-mill dog bite after thorough irrigation, based on the little bit of evidence that's out there, it's reasonable to suture closed dog bites in immunocompetent patients. For a deep dive into the literature on antibiotics, check out Justin's post on First 10 EM. My practice is not to give antibiotics for simple dog bites in immunocompetent patients, unless the bite is into a joint or tendon of the hand, for example, uh, or if it's very difficult to irrigate properly for whatever reason. Next, we've got Swami riffing off a recent New England Journal of Medicine RCT on using BVM during the apneic phase of RSI. Rapid sequence intubation is one of the specialty-defining procedures in emergency medicine. 
Although the procedure is complex, the major pieces of pure RSI are pre-oxygenation, administration of a sedative agent in close proximity with a paralytic, laryngoscopy, and placement of an ET tube without the provision of any ventilations during the process. The avoidance of bag mask valve or BMV or any positive pressure breaths rests on the belief that those breaths will distend the stomach and lead to regurgitation and aspiration. Because patients presenting to the ED with airway compromise can't be guaranteed to have a fasting state, regurgitation and aspiration are a major concern, so we avoid BMV. However, as always, there's another side to this. Many of our patients who are critically ill have physiologic shunting, meaning that there are portions of the lung that aren't being oxygenated, though they are being perfused. Blood running through these portions of the lung will be deoxygenated when it comes out and will lower the overall O2 content of blood leaving the lungs when it mixes with blood from adequately ventilated portions. This shunting at least partially explains why we see patients rapidly desaturate during intubation. Positive pressure breaths can help this situation by recruiting the atelectatic portions of the lung so that they are involved in gas exchange. This will decrease shunting and increase the patient's oxygen reserve prior to intubation. One way that we can do this is by pre-oxygenating with non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, and I do see that used from time to time, but it's definitely not moved into standard practice. Despite decades of experience with RSI, we continue to look for better approaches since the procedure still poses serious risk to our patients. Some recent modifications that I've adopted include the bed-up head-elevated position, suction-assisted laryngoscopy for airway decontamination or salad, and a bougie first approach. But there are many more options that we can use to modify the way we do RSI. And that brings us to a recent ICU study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that has some of us questioning the core principle of RSI, or one of the core principles, which is no bag mask ventilations after induction. I don't want to go deep into the study methodologies and strengths and weaknesses. There's a good review of it on Palmcrit from Josh Farkas, and I did a critical appraisal over on Rebel EM, and we'll drop links to those in the show notes. Quickly, though, what they found was that adding bag mask ventilations after induction and before laryngoscopy led to improvement in the lowest O2 sat during intubation, a 4.7% adjusted difference, and more importantly, a lower incidence of critical hypoxemia, which they defined as a sat less than 80%. Additionally, they didn't see an increased risk of aspiration in the bag mask ventilation group, but this study was too small to establish safety. Based on this, should we be adopting bag mask ventilations prior to laryngoscopy in all patients? I think the wholesale adoption isn't quite ready at this point. Remember, this is an ICU study, not an ED one. ICU patients are much more likely to have empty stomachs, which is evidenced by the low overall aspiration rate in this study. Also, there were some baseline differences in the groups despite randomization, including a higher rate of pneumonia and hypercarbic respiratory failure in the no-bag mask group, when those two entities can particularly benefit from positive pressure. The BMV group also had another advantage in this study in that they were more likely to have positive pressure applied during preoxygenation, which may account for some of the differences that we see. In addition to that, apneic oxygenation was also more common in the BMV group. Probably the most important piece to consider here is how the bag mask ventilations were applied. 
Prior to this study, they had an educational intervention to train providers on the ideal way to deliver those breaths. The oxygen flow rate should be set to 15 liters per minute. The PEEP valve should be on and set to 5 to 10 centimeters of water. An oropharyngeal airway should be in place. A two-handed mask seal performed by the intubating clinician with a head tilt and chin lift maneuver should be done. Ventilation should be at no more than 10 breaths per minute. And the smallest tidal volume necessary to generate chest rise is what they were shooting for. Unfortunately, we know that in the ED, and probably in most ICUs as well, this isn't how these breaths are delivered. Patients get bagged at high rates, 20 to 30 breaths per minute, and will have large tidal volumes and large pressures. All of this is going to contribute to gastric insufflation, increasing the risk of regurgitation and aspiration. Training providers to do BMV correctly with a proper two-hand seal with that chin lift with low tidal volumes at low rates is critically important. All BVMs should have a PEEP valve on them, and a lot of airway gurus also think that a pressure manometer can be added to this to help us mitigate the risk of insufflation. If you are properly trained and can control your sympathetic surge and you can bag the right way, I think applying positive pressure breaths prior to laryngoscopy can be really useful. It's highly unlikely that this is necessary for all patients who need RSI, but if your clinical assessment tells you that the patient has shunting going on or that the addition of positive pressure is going to help, go for it. Remember that you can pre-oxygenate with non-invasive ventilation, or you can use your vent to supply positive pressure breaths with a face mask in place. Both of these are going to aid with recruitment. If the patient is a high risk for aspiration, and I'm thinking of the GI hemorrhage or the bowel obstruction, or the patient has a takeout bag in hand, I would consider skipping the bag mask ventilations. If you don't think they're high risk, adding BMV makes a lot of sense. Remember to continue to do the things that improve your rate of first pass success. Bed up, head elevated position, which can reduce aspiration risk, as well as buying you more safe apneic time, salad for decontamination if it occurs, and bougie first for all tubes. Couldn't agree more with Swami on this one. BVM during the apneic period isn't ready for prime time across the board in the ED quite yet, but it might be considered for the low-risk aspiration, high-risk DSAT patient in addition to nasal O2 cranked as high as it goes. And only if you've got a peep valve and only if you can bag at a low rate just enough to get the chest to rise. We'll see what future studies show, but I suspect that the benefit found in the BVM group might have been wholly due to the fact that more of them had nasal apneic oxygenation and BVM before paralysis. Next up is Michelle Clayman, EM doc also trained in addiction medicine. She's going to argue that ED docs are in the perfect position to offer patients with alcohol use disorder anti-craving medications. Because the evidence is pretty good that they work at curbing the drinking and even helping them quit. You know, maybe if we all prescribed anti-craving meds for these patients, some of our hallways wouldn't be lined all night with patients who are just sobering up. Instead, maybe they'd be at home, sober with their spouse, thinking about their next productive day at work. I couldn't turn on my national public broadcaster in the new year without hearing terms like dry January and my favorite, sober curious. I welcome the discussion as alcohol is still the most widely abused substance in the world. From 2016 to 2017, 3,000 more Canadians were hospitalized due to alcohol compared to those hospitalized with ACS. And that doesn't even include patients who were discharged from the emergency department. In the U.S., alcohol is the third leading preventable cause of death. And at a global level, in 2012, 
over 3.3 million deaths were directly due to alcohol. 3.3 million. That is more than the population of Chicago dead due to alcohol. I was shocked when I was listening to a call-in show that focused on the inability of those with alcohol use disorder to access evidence-based treatment. My uneasiness grew as I heard stories about primary care and emergency physicians actually refusing to prescribe anti-craving medications. These medications are safe, effective, and there is no reason why we as emergency physicians should be refusing to prescribe them. Last month, I saw a 37-year-old in the ED after she passed out in a snowbank. She was very intoxicated, and I kept her in the ED long enough to have a conversation with her before she left. On further history, she told me that she was drinking in a binge pattern, 1.5 liters of wine a day for five days in a row, every two weeks. She had never experienced withdrawal symptoms beyond a slight tremor, but her life had fallen apart due to her drinking, and she was at rock bottom. Counseling and AA had been helpful, but she kept relapsing. I asked if anyone had ever offered her anti-craving medication, and she looked at me blankly and said, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. I wrote her a script for naltrexone, 50 milligrams OD times two weeks, and arranged a follow-up appointment in the outpatient clinic. She has been doing well and has not had a drink in six weeks. This patient had presented to the ED seven times in the past six months for alcohol intoxication, sees her family doctor on a monthly basis, but never once had she been offered an anti-craving medication. Looking at the data, she is not alone. In general, less than 9% of patients with alcohol use disorder are ever offered an anti-craving medication. In Ontario, where I practice, it's even worse. Less than 1% of adults with alcohol use disorder are ever prescribed these medications, and it's not a cost issue. These medications are covered by social assistance programs. Naltrexone is first-line treatment for alcohol use disorder. The starting dose of naltrexone is 50 milligrams once a day. It has a number needed to treat of only 12 to prevent returning to heavy drinking and 20 to prevent any drinking. To remind you that NNT is fantastic compared to the NNT for ASA in STEMI to prevent mortality, which is 42. The main side effect of naltrexone is GI upset, and it's contraindicated in patients who take opioids as it's an opioid antagonist, or in those whose LFTs are three times the upper limits of normal. Naltrexone works on the reward circuits in the brain by blocking the effect of endogenous opioids that are released in anticipation of drinking or when alcohol is consumed. It's not a magic pill, but when combined with psychosocial support, it can be just what someone needs to reach their goal of abstinence or reduction in drinking. Let's say my patient's LFTs were way out of whack. What then? Luckily, we have another option, acamprosate, but compliance is an issue as it is dosed as 666 milligrams TID. Next time you see someone in the ED intoxicated or in withdrawal, try to resist the common order of discharge when awake, alert, and ambulatory. Not only are you going to miss an opportunity for brief intervention and referral to addiction services, but you will also miss the opportunity of starting patients on anti-craving medication that is safe, effective, and should be barrier-free. Don't forget to arrange follow-up with Addiction Medicine Clinic or ask them to see their primary care provider as naltrexone should be continued for up to 12 months. You may say this is not in your wheelhouse, that this medication should be prescribed by addiction medicine specialists. I encourage you to re-exam those thoughts and then promptly discard them. 
The emergency department is often the first or most frequent point of contact for many of these patients, and we can make a big difference here. For any alcohol misuse patient you see in the ED, I think it's worth taking a couple of minutes to ask them if they're interested in quitting, and if they're motivated to quit, and you can get them follow-up, go ahead and write up a script for naltrexone 50 milligrams daily for a couple of weeks. Just make sure you confirm that they aren't taking opioids and that they don't have severe liver disease. If they do have severe liver disease, try a acamprosate. For every dozen or so patients you do this with, one is likely to decrease their drinking enough to regain control of their lives and maybe prevent future ED visits for alcohol-related problems. Last but certainly not least, we have a special guest quick hitter, the man behind the EM Cases Waiting to be Seen blog, my mentor, and many, many other EM docs' mentor, the great Howard Ovens. A few years ago, a very pleasant but very upset older gentleman came to our emerge to see our head nurse. I call him Bob. Bob wanted to talk to her about his treatment a few days earlier in our department. He said he'd been treated with zero respect, restrained for no good reason. His human rights were violated, he said, and he had no idea why we would treat a senior citizen that way. Our head nurse knew almost immediately who he was because the staff had indeed told her about a very upsetting, intoxicated older man who had been out of control the night before and extremely abusive. She was shocked that the gentle person in front of her could possibly be the same person, and she was amazed that he had no idea how he'd behaved. So she told him what the staff had said about his behavior, but she went further. She showed him the security tapes of his interactions with our staff that led to him being restrained. He was mortified. He was embarrassed and in tears. He left quietly, but he came back the next day and he brought a note of apology. That note I'll never forget. It was heartfelt and articulate. And I can tell you a few of the staff who read it did so without getting at least a bit teary. That small event is a dramatic example for all of us how in the emergency department we often see people at their worst. We could be surprised at who these people are when they're not in crisis. But how do we sometimes react to these encounters in the ED with people like Bob? Well, we've all seen and heard it. Sometimes we evict them from the department. And sadly, sometimes we do that before they've been fully assessed for safety and competence to be discharged. We also sometimes ban them from returning. Turning a person like Bob out into the night before sobering up or preventing him from returning regardless of the circumstances, to me, that's an abdication of our obligations to our patients. And more importantly, it's a sign that the emergency department has not received adequate support to keep staff and patients safe while continuing to provide care. We all know the many causes of behavioral disturbance we see in our patients. Drugs and alcohol dementia and delirium, psychosis and other psychiatric disturbances, and so often a combination. We know that making a diagnosis and determining competency can be challenging, and it may require multiple investigations. Yet we also feel, rightly so, that we deserve a safe workplace, and we have an obligation to our other patients and families to protect them as well. Saying we will have zero tolerance of abuse and violence, 
To me, that's just a slogan, not a strategy, to manage all of our obligations. Rather than a zero-tolerance slogan, we need a thoughtful suite of approaches. This range of approaches includes ED design, properly trained security staff in adequate numbers, clear policies and procedures to safely affect physical and chemical restraint when needed, clear processes for incident reporting and then reviewing those reports, and perhaps most important of all, clear administrative accountability for safety and security in the workplace. I know some of our patients and families can behave badly at times, and that behavior can be voluntary and not related to any illness that would lessen their responsibility for their actions. The risk of acting out may increase when wait times are long or communication is poor, and sadly, the nurses often receive the brunt of this abuse. However, a visible and well-trained security presence can discourage most of this type of behavior and respond rapidly when it does occur. Keep in mind that many of our patients come from marginalized groups. So many of them will have had experiences since childhood with staff and institutions that are either unconcerned with their welfare and needs or too often openly abusive and discriminatory. People in power, especially people in uniforms, rules they can't understand, all of these things can be triggering and evoke a defensive or angry reaction from people with that kind of history. My daughter is a social worker in inner-city Toronto. In her work, she often accompanies clients to the emergency department or is involved in referring them and then following up after their visit. She has shared with me many disappointing instances of her clients encountering hostility and stigma from ED staff that contributed to them escalating their behavior and led to conflict that was avoidable. What if we were really nice to these people in the ED? Would that encourage them to bounce back more frequently? One of my favorite journal articles of all time is now over 20 years old but it remains just as relevant today to the issue of stigma and how we approach marginalized patients. The study addresses directly and brilliantly a common shibboleth that comes up now and then, that we can't be too nice to these type of patients, heavy ED users, for fear that we will just encourage them and make their visits more frequent. Don Rettelmeyer and his colleagues tested this belief in a randomized, blinded fashion. Patients who looked to be homeless were randomly either approached by a trained volunteer or not. The volunteers were encouraged to get to know the patients, engage them in some conversation, and where their circumstances allowed, offer some snacks or other comforts. They tracked the frequency of repeat visits between the control group and the treatment arm, and they called the trial aptly a trial of compassionate care. And guess what? Patients who had some positive attention, a bit of TLC, actually made one-third less visits over the next month than those that did not. Perhaps one reason patients come back so often is that their needs have not yet been met. I don't want to sound like I'm blaming frontline staff for the conflicts in our EDs. Not at all. We all do need to reflect on our attitudes and biases, but I especially want to challenge my colleagues, ED leadership, to look in the mirror 
Are we meeting our obligations to provide a safe environment? Are we setting a good example through our words, our actions, and the priorities we set in making our departments a safe and compassionate place, a sanctuary for our most vulnerable patients? Right, for a deep dive into how your ED can better care for homeless, agitated, and violent patients, read Dr. Oven's Waiting to be Seen blog on the topic that he co-wrote with his daughter. It's pure gold. Yeah.